previously on If the Walls Could Talk. There were just far too many of these procedures being performed. And that was Dr. Cabrilla. Dr. Cabrilla was a very problematic individual. I never thought he would actually do things to kill patients. The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised. People called Peter Rogan a savior when he purchased the near-bankrupt Edgewater Hospital in 1989. Five years later, when Peter sold it for $30 million more than he paid, and even got the hospital to hire his management company to run it, it was called a real success story. But as the feds unraveled all the shady deals that led up to the hospital's turnaround, Peter claimed that he didn't know anything about it. The feds called that BS. My belief is that Peter Rogan knew everything that was happening at that hospital. That's FBI agent Cherry Coon. Nothing went on in that hospital that he wasn't aware of. The FBI had doctors wearing wires to help piece together not only what was happening, but who was involved. The feds used those tapes to flip multiple players in the scheme, like Dr. Rao. But if they wanted to get to Peter Rogan, they would need to flip his number two guy, Roger Eamon. Roger definitely had a huge impact on what was happening there with these unnecessary admissions. The FBI was well aware of Roger's role. I think he wanted to please Peter, and I think he was very intimidated by Peter. They had tapes of him discussing the Patients for Kickback scheme and stopped by his home one day to share them. He was very nice, very courteous. He had so much on the line. His job was on the line, which probably meant family on the line and everything else. They probably don't like going to people's homes with the kids there and the spouse there and all of that. The fact that the FBI paid Roger Eamon a visit added to the paranoia that he might be cooperating with the government and potentially recording conversations. Getting Roger to flip seemed like a slam dunk, given the evidence stacked against him. And that might have crossed Peter Rogan's mind as well, because what followed was a series of mysterious meetings between Peter and Roger. One Saturday, Peter Rogan invited Roger Eamon and another employee to a business lunch at the Ritz-Carlton. After the three finished their meeting, the other employee left, and that's when things got weird. Peter suggested that he and Roger go to the Ritz's club for a steam bath, which Roger agreed to. That venue provided Peter an opportunity to A, see if Roger was wearing a wire, and B, to speak candidly and privately about the investigation. As the two made their way into the locker room to change, that's when Roger said he noticed Peter watching him very closely. At that time, Peter knew that at least one doctor at Edgewater had worn a recording device. Roger believes that's why Peter was eyeing him, to make sure that he wasn't wearing a wire. After they changed into towels and entered the steam room, things continued down this strange path. Peter kept pouring water over the stones, which created a lot of background noise. Noise that would make it difficult to hear the sound of voices, if, for example, you were recording the conversation. Then Peter launched into a story about an interesting novel he had read. This novel had a lot of characters, but the main character fell into a difficult situation, and things didn't look good for him. But then the main character stepped up to the plate and took responsibility for certain actions. And he did this for the best interest of the organization. Roger knew this novel Peter was describing was no fairy tale, but merely a way to talk about the current situation happening at the hospital. As their steam continued, 
Peter described that the story had a happy ending because the person who took responsibility was taken care of. That's when Peter became more explicit. He said if Roger would avoid implicating him, Peter would see to it that Roger and his family were taken care of forever, even if Roger was in prison. Roger asked, how will you get money to my wife? Peter responded that he could hire Roger's wife to work for one of his businesses. Roger said he played along, nodding his head to indicate he would not implicate Peter. Roger's encounters with Peter continued to get more and more strange. Peter would have a verbal conversation about personal things like their families, but at the same time he would scribble messages on a pad of paper about how things didn't look good and how he couldn't support Roger's family any longer because it would look inappropriate, because it would appear as though he was paying him off. And then Peter wrote that he'd take care of Roger forever and underlined the word forever. While meeting with some of these people that were involved in the fraud, he would say one thing out loud, but then would write something else on a notepad that was in front of him or in front of both of them. The FBI believed that Peter was covering his tracks in case someone was listening. Yeah, the theory was that Peter Rogan seemed to always think he was being recorded and he didn't want to say something incriminating on tape. The problem was... After each meeting, he took the notepad with him and we were never able to obtain any of those notepads. But Peter's mysterious note passing wasn't just limited to Roger Eamon. It also happened to Dr. Andrew Cabrilla. Cubria stopped by Peter's office one day, and Peter advised him to lawyer up because Cubria was under investigation. And then things got strange. Peter asked about Cabria's family and then grabbed a notepad and scribbled, Destroy your computer and any memos you've written. He then verbally asked another question, but wrote on the notepad, Do not tell your attorney about this conversation. Cabria was confused and said, What are you talking about? Then Peter put his finger to his lips as if to say, Shh. It all played out again a few weeks later. This time, Peter wrote, The government is looking for more records, and you definitely need to get a criminal attorney. He scribbled this note while talking aloud about something unrelated. The nagging fear that someone might be wearing a wire or trying to record incriminating conversations intensified. The two met for lunch, and Cabrilla said Peter scribbled on a note, Someone might be following us. And then, when a woman left her coat at a nearby table, Peter asked the waiter to seat them somewhere else. That's when Dr. Kubria shared that he was broke. So broke that he might have to use a public defender because he couldn't even afford a lawyer. A few days later, Peter told him to meet with a mutual friend named Dr. Lopez. When Cabrilla showed up, Dr. Lopez handed him an envelope and told him it was a gift from St. Peter. Inside the envelope was $9,000 in cash. While administrators feared that they were being recorded or followed, hospital employees saw the articles in the paper and feared for their jobs. You kind of saw the writing on the wall, you kind of saw it coming. Chris Ledger worked at Edgewater. And I remember bringing in that article about the hospital being investigated. And I got talked to that I was spreading rumors and I was creating an unsafe environment. And I'm like, it's in the newspaper. Like I was just talking about it. You know, what's going on? Are we going to have jobs? I mean, everybody worries about their job. I'm in my 20s. I'm living in the city. Like, I need this job. 
My attorney who I was working with said, there's bad stuff happening. You need to get out of there. Janice Lindquist was the hospital's HR director. I was horrified on a regular basis. When Janice reported things to her bosses, she believed they were taking action. I did my best to report and take it up the chain. And then they would say, okay, you know, good girl, we'll take care of it. And then you would wait for the consequences, which never came. She learned that the higher-ups at the hospital weren't doing anything about it. Nothing. Morale and ethics were out the window. Kevin King worked at Edgewater. The fire alarm system wasn't working properly, and he wanted me to falsify records. And I said, here's my keys, here's my pager. I'll be out of here in a half an hour. And I just grabbed some boxes and started packing up, and I was out of there. Most troubling was that two patients died under Dr. Cabrera's watch, and no one investigated, questioned, or did any follow-up. No bad outcome for the physician, nothing. It was surreal. Dr. Parag Madani worked at Edgewater Hospital. You have all these agencies that call themselves regulators and reviewers and oversight people. What were you doing when you came and looked at this place? Edgewater Hospital was subject to plenty of oversight. The Illinois Department of Public Health was one, but the hospital also paid the Joint Commission to do an inspection every three years. Back then, a hospital paid about $40,000 for the Joint Commission to conduct a survey. A passing grade indicated that the hospital was clean, adequately staffed, and provided superior care. But at the time, the Joint Commission standards were a bit unhinged. They made sure kick plates on hospital doors were glued on, not screwed in, but they didn't actually check to see if surgeons were properly licensed. They also gave notice of their inspection up to three months in advance. Despite their criteria, this accreditation was crucial for Edgewater's financial health because it allowed them to treat Medicare patients. Even with all the nefarious activities happening at Edgewater in the 90s, the hospital received the seal of approval from the Joint Commission. I guess if the walls could talk, it would be like, why did you see what we saw? Why did you let it go for years and years and years? All they had to do was stop a few people from doing the bad things and let the good people do their jobs. Edgewater Hospital had a board that served as the governing body of the hospital. It was responsible for oversight and ensuring quality care. You should have seen this girl. Lemmings look like independent thinkers when you compare to these board members. Attorney Dave Stetler represented Edgewater Hospital. The people on the board had pretty much one thing in common. They were friends of Peter and would go along with pretty much anything he wanted to do with rare exception. Well, not everyone on the board. There was a doctor from California who absolutely went his own way. And in one board meeting, the last one I attended at some fancy hotel in Chicago, nearly got in a fist fight with one of the other board members because he was basically saying, you guys are asleep at the switch. The one board member says, well, wait a second. This is the first time you've ever said anything about fraud. You know, he's like, what is in your head? What, what's this color of the sky in your world? That's all we talk about is fraud. This is all fraud. I just remember looking at the guy who was right next to me and I holy shit. Despite all the turmoil at Edgewater, their board of directors continued to pay Peter Rogan's management company a lucrative contract to run the hospital. All of this was very expensive. And the board meetings were always at very luxurious places. 
One was at the Ritz-Carlton in Palm Beach, Florida. And I remember sitting out by the pool, talking to the regular lawyer and asking him, what the fuck is a little not-for-profit hospital from Chicago having a board meeting at the Ritz-Carlton in Florida? And him just kind of laughing and shrugging his shoulders, saying, well, that's kind of the way they do it. It was crazy. With the hospital board debating what to do about Peter Rogan, Peter made another mysterious visit to Roger Eamon. And then Peter once again started writing notes on a pad of paper. I've done my job. Now it's time for you to do yours. Roger wrote back, what's my job? Peter responded, to take full responsibility. You should say that you did all of the activities described on the tapes, but that you did them without my knowledge. As for the times Roger said he'd have to run things past Peter, just say that was for impact, but that the two of us never discussed it. The best thing for you to do is plead guilty and cooperate. Take the blame for everything. After their verbal and written conversation wrapped up, Roger said Peter folded up the note, put it in his pocket, and walked out. With pressure mounting in the spring of 2001, Edgewater Hospital's board finally ousted Peter Rogan's management company. The hospital's lawyer, Dave Stetler, told the Chicago Tribune, Rogan's status is as follows, gone. It wasn't me being totally a smartass, and it wasn't just to insult Peter. It was to make sure that the government who read it sees that we threw the son of a bitch out, which is what I had recommended to the board and what I told the U.S. attorney I was going to try to accomplish. The hospital may have broken up with Peter Rogan's management company, but Peter still owned some of the hospital buildings, making things a bit complicated. Peter would have to come into the building for meetings and stuff related to the real estate, and he wasn't able to cross the threshold into the parts of the building that were not owned by him. And I just remembered that they were like, Peter's in the building, but he can't go into this building because he's barred legally from coming on the premises. But he has to be let into these buildings because he owns them. Behind the scenes of the investigation, things were also getting heated. And then everything came to a screeching halt when they reached an unexpected fork in the road. Sherry Kuhn explains. At a certain point in our investigation, it became clear to us that the only reason that Edgewater was still in business was because this huge fraud was happening, that millions of dollars in fraudulent billings were being submitted to Medicare and Medicaid by some of these doctors and by the hospital. The only thing keeping Edgewater Hospital in business was money from Medicare and Medicaid. And most of that money was dirty. It was the result of the medical fraud happening there. Basically, without this fraudulent stream of income, the hospital just couldn't survive. This left the difficult question, now what? There did come a time where the assistant U.S. attorney, Jackie Stern, advised me that she was proposing that the hospital be criminally charged. I've been doing this white-collar criminal defense stuff in the healthcare industry for a long time. And trust me, my ego was not registering the fact that I may be the first lawyer ever to have a not-for-profit hospital indicted. That would not be good for Edgewater Hospital. That would be the end of its operations, which I didn't want to see happen. So Dave and the neighborhood aldermen went to see the U.S. attorney and FBI to plead their case to spare the hospital. And our major pitch was the hospital really didn't do anything wrong. 
the people who are running it are responsible for the misconduct. He wanted prosecutors to know who was to blame. Management was the management company that Peter Rogan owned. Blame Rogan, but don't blame the hospital. A day after Edgewater's board fired Peter Rogan's management company, the years of investigations into the hospital hit its climax. The U.S. Attorney's Office dropped a 58-count indictment. Among those indicted were Dr. Rao and two other doctors. The hospital's management company was also indicted, along with Roger Eman. The feds charged them with running a bribery scheme that targeted people struggling with substance abuse, homelessness, and others who just needed a meal and a place to stay. Bruce Japson broke the story. They were preying upon elderly, frail, poor people to boost patient admissions and therefore revenue and therefore make money by admitting patients who didn't need to be there. The indictment alleged that Medicare, Medicaid, and private companies paid more than $1 million for unneeded medical care performed at Edgewater. When you are admitting poor elderly people, not even sick, just so you can make more money and boost your profits and your revenues. I mean, this is a snapshot into egregious healthcare fraud. But noticeably absent from the indictment was Peter Rogan himself. The hospital ultimately from 1989 until it closed was run by Peter Rogan. He was always very close to the entities that managed the hospital when he ran it himself and he was the manager. He was the maestro of the facilities for sure. But the question of why Peter Rogan wasn't charged... That's a good question. ...seemed to have no answer. Here's the thing. Healthcare is very complicated, and healthcare fraud can be tracked to the physicians. And then the physicians, you know, work with hospital administrators, so I think the more direct contact with the physicians would have been Roger. In 2001... Roger Eamon entered a guilty plea for his role in the Patients for Kickback scheme that brought down the hospital. I did that because they threatened 20 years. I was 55 at the time, and my wife and I talked and said, you know, it's best if we just plead guilty, get a lower sentence, and because I want to you know, be able to be with my family. The hospital's former vice president admitted to funneling $290,000 in kickbacks to two doctors. They hand me a document to sign, and there's a whole bunch of things in there that they wanted me to confess to that I didn't do. I was crying when I hadn't signed that. And they told me, if you don't sign, we're going for the 20 years. I had to get on my knees and pray and tell God, I'm signing this thing, but you know I didn't do any of these things. As Roger stood at his sentencing hearing, his lawyer argued that everything the government accused him of doing was done under the orders of Peter Rogan. To be honest with you, I think that they really wanted Rogan and not me. And they viewed me as a way of getting Rogan. And they asked me to say things that weren't true. And I refused. And that didn't go over very well with them. They thought I was lying and all this stuff. Even the judge asked the question everyone else wondered. Why wasn't Peter Rogan charged? Even Peter Rogan's lawyer wondered the same thing. I wondered that at the time, too. Neil Holman was part of Peter's defense team. But I really don't know. I was not involved in the criminal case. 
At Roger's sentencing hearing, U.S. Attorney Jackie Stern explained. People have told us that when the investigation came up, Rogan came to Kubria and said, destroy your notes, destroy your computer. But the fact of the matter is, the person everyone dealt with was Roger Eman. He was the front man. He made the statements, he dealt with the doctors, he signed the contracts, he negotiated the contracts. Rogan and Eman, it appears, worked hand in hand. She pointed out the story about Dr. Will G., the doctor who worked at one of the satellite clinics. She said Roger Eman directed Dr. G to increase his admissions and then fired him for not sending more patients to Edgewater. Roger also ordered his assistant to backdate and falsify time cards in order to make it look like all these people with bogus contracts were actually fulfilling their duties. He was recruiting doctors and directing doctors, which I believe makes him a leader or organizer. They were mad at me. They actually intimated that if I tell them what they wanted to hear about Rogan, they might not indict me. And I said to myself, you know, I'm not going to lie. The judge didn't go easy on Roger. He was ordered to pay $5 million in restitution and was sentenced to 78 months in federal prison. I did do a lot of things he said I did, but I did do some things wrong. And um, for my part in this thing, I need to accept responsibility. You know, I paid for five years and two months of my life for that. I did a full three years of probation. And it is what it is. So I just I have to live with that. Was he at fault? Well, if that's how it was found to be in court, then yes, he was at fault. That's Jim Ginter. Did he take the fall? Maybe. You know, in the big picture, I always felt kind of bad for the guy. Neil Holman was Peter Rogan's lawyer. I think Eamon tried to protect himself in the hospital throughout the investigation, from what I can recall. The FBI approached Roger as early as 1999, but he told investigators that he had nothing to offer. It wasn't until late 2001 when he finally agreed to talk with FBI agent Cherry Coon. I think that ultimately he cooperated. So how did a man so loved at the hospital get caught up in this fraud scheme? Roger Eamon I knew very well the nicest person in the world. Former employees like Karen McCaro had a guess. Everybody thought that Roger was being paid some astronomical amount of money for taking the fall. Janice Lindquist heard the same rumor. The rumor at the time was that Peter had Roger take the fall and there was a $2 million bank account waiting for Roger when he got out of prison. I had always said, I think Peter paid Roger. Chris Ledger worked at Edgewater. And when I had someone from the Department of Justice come to my house, I said that at one point. I said, I think there's an account. And and I said, it's, it's my opinion. I have no clue if that's really true. And the guy goes, yeah, we looked. I have the transcripts from the trial that I took no money. I showed the U.S. Attorney's Office the transcripts where the judge said that I didn't take any money. She acknowledged that. Even the prosecuting attorney said I didn't take any money. The bottom line is, when you don't cooperate and tell them what I'm here, they give you a heavy sentence. I paid the price for that. It's the Zoom call where I was crying, Todd was crying, and our guest was crying. We'll talk about what happened and why the interview almost never aired. 
We'll also explain why some employees thought the hospital was going to be saved at the last minute. We'll share what happened and why things ultimately fell apart. Unlock bonus content like that for just $10 a month at patreon.com slash if the walls could talk podcast. With Roger Eman heading to prison, numerous other doctors facing charges, and the possibility of Medicare and Medicaid cutting off payments to the hospital, many wondered if Edgewater could remain in business. We couldn't keep people who were responsible for Medicare billing. Janice Lindquist was the hospital's HR director. They would just keep quitting because they said, you know, there's so much shady stuff going on here, I can't be affiliated with this. We were in the cafeteria, I was with a friend, and all the doctors that were in trouble sitting around the table, and I went, there's a table full of crooks. So we knew that there was trouble, but we just didn't know details. For Karen Maccaro, who worked there for 33 years, she held out hope. We thought we were going to be saved at the last minute. Maybe that's what we wanted to believe. (laughs) Just to put things into perspective, all of this turmoil was happening right after the September 11th attacks. So the world was already upside down for these hundreds of employees at Edgewater. They let out a sigh of relief when a buyer emerged. But it was short-lived because the buyer ultimately dropped out. The writing was all over the walls at Edgewater, and it wasn't good. At some point in the investigation, after reviewing the evidence, after reviewing the billings for Medicare and Medicaid, it became pretty clear that the hospital couldn't stay open. Because frankly, the hospital was only surviving because it was committing fraud, because it was allowing these millions of dollars of billings to Medicare and Medicaid. And we couldn't allow the fraud to continue But in doing so, we fully understood the impact we were going to have, which meant hundreds of people losing their jobs. The situation presented an awful catch-22 for nearly everyone involved. You know, we had numerous meetings and sometimes heated discussions. It became political. I mean, you know, the aldermen don't want to lose a hospital in, in their district, right? And we did not want to take away this community hospital that so many people. I'm sorry. That a lot of people depended on. But ultimately, it was something that we had to do. Even though this happened nearly 20 years ago, it's something she hasn't forgotten. It's been a long time since I thought about this. We never lost sight of that as investigators. Well, initially, you know, we started out and and our goal was to stop this fraud from happening if that was the case. I don't think it really ever crossed our mind at the beginning that this was something that could happen. Our emotions were all over the place, you know. We were happy that we were able to stop the fraud that was going on, but we fully understood the effect 
that it had on the employees and the community. It was difficult. It, I can only speak for myself. By November of 2001, Edgewater took its final hit when Medicare and Medicaid cut off payments to the hospital. That is the death knell for any hospital. If Medicare and Medicaid says, we're no longer gonna reimburse and or pay to have people cared for, you're done. Medicare and Medicaid is probably 40 to 50% of any hospital's revenue. And when you were Edgewater, you didn't have many, if any, commercial insurance contracts. You're totally reliant on government reimbursement. When the government comes along and says, we ain't gonna allow seniors and poor people who get our insurance to go to your facility anymore, it's, it's kind of over, Johnny. That tells all private insurers, that tells the state, Something is so horribly wrong, Medicare doesn't want to pay on your claims. Journalist Monica Ryda covered the story. If no one wants to reimburse your claims because you defrauded the federal government, you can't pay your bills. So it's not like the federal government came swooping in and locked the doors and seized the property. Edgewater ultimately closed because of the financial problems that came up because they chose to defraud the government. I will tell you that it was not an easy decision. The hospital's survival was just so dependent on these fraudulent billings. The U.S. Attorney's Office really considered every option, uh, every alternative to the hospital shutting down, but there just, there wasn't one. It was the last thing we wanted to happen. I got a phone call. He said, Rogelio, they're going to close the hospital tomorrow. I, I couldn't sleep that night. On that warm morning of December 6th, 2001, all employees were directed to the auditorium to hear that Edgewater Hospital was closing its doors. It was the most bizarre experience. Pete Stafford was an EMT who was dropping off a patient that day. The entire ER staff was in tears. And, you know, they're just like, yeah, put the patient over here. And finally, we're like, you know, what's going on? And they told us, yeah, we were just informed that we no longer have jobs after today. And we were like, wow, I don't think I'll ever have that erased from my mind. It was hustling, bustling, getting people out. You know, they had to transfer them to other hospitals, other facilities. As Emily Becker helped to move out patients, Georgette Ginter searched for answers. I was the person responsible for billing Medicare claims, and here we are looking at Medicare fraud. I guess my one wish is that my mom didn't have to see it close. Dr. Maisel's daughter, Zelda Ginter, was devastated. Her son, Jim, remembers how difficult it was for her to even see the shuttered hospital. I know that took a lot out of her. I'm sad that she didn't see the hospital live out the life that it should have, that she had hoped it would have, even if she wasn't involved in it. And I know in her heart, she wished there was more she could have done for none of that to have happened. For a long time, it was hard for her to drive by it when it was closed. You know, she would avoid it as much as she could. And I know she took with her up to the day she died. 
she wondered if there was anything that could have changed. That was a very difficult day. There were a lot of tears, people kissing each other, people saying goodbye to each other. There was a lot of anger. I mean, they destroy people's life. Dr. Rogelio Manulet worked his way from surgical assistant to chief of the medical staff. The hospital that was his second home was now gone. I think it really shook him to his core. Dr. Manulet's son, Roger, spoke about how the hospital's closing affected his dad. This was his stable home for his time in America. And for someone who grew up the way he did through the revolution in Cuba and all of that, Edgewater Hospital served as that stability for him. I was proud of that hospital. I was proud to work over there. Having that destroyed by the scandal that happened at Edgewater disgusted him because he tried to stop it. He tried to sound the alarms and his concerns were dismissed. He's moved on, but I don't think he's ever had that closure. And what is shameful that people will remember Edgewater Hospital because, oh, Hillary Clinton was born there, Wayne Gacy was born there, and not what Edgewater Hospital was. The way the hospital's legacy is remembered continues to bother Dr. Manulet. It burns my, my guts. The only thing that remembers about Edgewater Hospital is the goddamn Peter Rogan or Roger Riemann. That's what still bothers me after so many years. Next time on If the Walls Could Talk. This is Elijah. I hope you and your family are doing okay. And I saw guilt in him. Rogan was a central participant, if not the central participant in the whole fraud scheme. I thought, uh-oh, that didn't sound too good for us. It was the beginning of a long overdue day of reckoning for Mr. Rogan. Rogan just left the country, he went, went to Canada. This episode featured sound effects and voiceovers from Phil Manicki read for Peter Rogan, Jackie Pick read for Jackie Stern, and Chris Rice read for Dr. Andrew Cabrillo. Sound effects from freesoundeffects.com and zapsplat.com. Music in this episode comes from the YouTube Audio Library. A Hand in the Dark by Underbelly and Ty Mayer. Incoming Transition by The Whole Other. Two Moons by Bobby Richards. Ammo by The Tides. Dark Alley Deals by Aaron Kenny. Slow Hammer by The Mini Vandals. Plato's K by Aura. Intense Suspense by Audionautics is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. Without Answer by Alex Kashkin. Criminal Pulse by Lynn and suspended in a dream by Dmitry Balachenko are all used under license through NeoSounds. This episode was written by Todd Gans. If the Walls Could Talk podcast is produced by Bucketown Productions LLC. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. <laughs>